Well, it is my pleasure to be here again, because it's a couple years ago, I think, that I, I preached uh, here uh, when you were over in the other, uh, other uh, school, almost said church, but uh, this is a church now for a little while anyway, but it's a pleasure to be here and to join in your missions conference um, and, and to be part of the kicking off. You heard uh, this morning in your Sunday school from our, some of our campus ministry uh, uh, goings on, and now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about mercy ministry. And um, what I would like to say is um, I'm going to focus on a passage that really God used to turn my heart to focus on the ministry of mercy and getting involved in people who are broken and, and suffer from disadvantages in different ways. Um, and uh, I, just, I just thought it was a good place to start as we talk about why get involved in mercy ministry and how to get involved in mercy ministry to listen to God's heart in that regard. So if you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. That's in the early books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're looking at verses 14 through 19. But before, we, before I start reading, I want to ask a question. How can you really get to know somebody well? As a, as a husband... As a friend, that's a question that often comes up. And some of the advice that I have heard over the years and I have started to follow is that you find out what's really important to them, what really interests them, and you get interested and involved in that same thing. For me and my wife, Carol, uh, it was easy. She loves to nest. She loves to make our home a place of beauty and of comfort where we can settle in and we can receive visitors in. And so anytime I get involved in doing something around the house, which is a challenge for me because I am not a real handy guy. But as I do that, it's it's kind of like speaking sweet, whispering sweet love things into her ear. It just opens up her heart and I get to be a part of her world. Well, in this passage... God lets us know what's truly important to him and how we can come alongside of him, get to know him better, and to participate in things that really matter to him. So this, this is really a dialogue of a lover and his intended. It doesn't sound like that, but if you look at the dynamics of what's going on here, it really is that. So with that in mind, listen now to God's word as we open it together. Starting with verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come to you and ask by the grace and presence of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of our hearts and lay in there a nugget of truth and that you would allow us by the grace of the Holy Spirit to get hold of that and to become not just hearers only, but doers of what you teach us this day. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So God starts out this passage and tells us about himself. He, to him belong the heavens, the heavens of heavens and all the earth. Everything is his. It belongs to him. And then it it gets really intimate fast. It says, and then God set his heart in love on you. We're going to look at how God became vulnerable and then how he asks us to respond to that vulnerability by opening ourselves up. And once we become vulnerable, then we move into a greater intimacy where we can understand and engage in what's important for each other. So when God says he set his heart in love upon this people and he said he set his love on your fathers and all of your people as you are today. So he was saying he says, we set my, my heart on Abraham, and now, all these years later, I've set my heart on you as well. I, I, I can remember growing up in my teenage years and getting ready to start my dating life. You guys will, uh, will recognize this tension, you know, say, here's a girl you want to take out, and, and you pick up, you, you think, okay, I'm going to call her and see if she can go out Friday. You pick up the phone, and... You get ready to dial and you put it down. You know, your heart's pounding. At least that was my experience. And you're, because, you know, what you're afraid of, you're afraid that she's going to say no. And then you don't know how really to handle that. So, you know, two or three times, and then you finally dial up, and, and I have gotten some no's, I have to tell you. It wasn't fun. But I got some yeses, too. But you see, when God says boldly, I have set my heart in love upon you, he in that moment becomes vulnerable. You think, well, he's God. And that stuff shouldn't bother him. But Israel, even after time, after time, after time, when God opened himself up to them, invited them into fellowship with him. They rejected him. This message in Deuteronomy is kind of Moses's final statement to the people of Israel before he dies, before they get ready to cross over into the promised land. And he is repeating again what God said to him, what God wanted them to hear once more. And so just in the last 40 or so years since they left Egypt, there's a record of God rejecting, or of the people of Israel rejecting God over and over again. When they were complaining about the manna that they got and the quails, that wasn't good enough. When they got into a tight pinch and they said, well, we would be better off to be back as slaves in Egypt than following around in this desert with this God. 
time and time again when when Moses went up to the, to receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb and was gone for 40 days. They said, well, where's our God? Where's Moses? Where's our leader? So they make a, a golden calf and they said, this is the God we're going to worship. You think that really shouldn't bother God, but it does. It's so painful for him that he gives the same kind that he gives a love language when he says, you chase after other gods and you are adulterers. He feels betrayed. He feels cheated upon. And so he is vulnerable there. So then God gives. But, you know, here's here's the thing. (laughs) You hear God saying this again after all of that has passed. And he says, once again, I have set my heart in love upon you. So God never gives up pursuing the Israelites, nor does he give up pursuing us. And then he tells us how we might be able to respond. And let me encourage you. Do you hear God calling in love to you today? Will you open your heart to that today? And listen how he's drawing you to himself and how he wants to open up who he is to you. Listen to how he starts out with that. He says in verse 15 this, or verse 16 rather. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Be no longer stubborn. What he is saying to the people of Israel is, Now, after you've seen all of this, if you've seen my love for you, my care for you, the parting of the Red Sea, all of those things, will you not just cut away those things in your heart that keep you separated from me? Will you not cut those things off? Well, we know the record is that they didn't do that, did they? They couldn't, frankly. And we, we know that that, um, that is that there's, they're going after other gods as part of that. But Brian Fickert, who wrote the book When Helping Hurts, thinks that there's a deeper thing going on here than just the, tra- the jumping after other gods. And, and he quotes uh, in his book from Isaiah chapter 1, and it says this, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemnist assembly. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Isaiah 58 says very much the same thing. And this is Fickert's conclusion from these passages. He says this. Here, Israel appears to be characterized by personal piety in the outward expression of formal religion, worshiping, offering sacrifices, celebrating religious holidays, fasting and praying. Translate that into the modern era, and we might say these folks were faithfully going to church each Sunday, attending a midweek prayer meeting, going on the annual church retreat, and singing the contemporary praise music. But God was disgusted with them going so far as to call them Sodom and Gomorrah. These are not easy words to hear. Continue, though. Why was God so displeased? Both passages emphasize that God was furious over Israel's failure to care for the poor and the oppressed. 
He wanted his people to loose the chains of injustice, not just go to church on Sunday. He wanted his people to clothe the naked and not just attend the midweek prayer meeting. He wanted people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and not just sing praise music. Personal piety and formal worship are essential to the Christian life, but they must lead to lives that act justly and love mercy. And that's why I was really glad to hear your report on mercy ministry, and you guys are moving in that direction. But we now know what happened to the people of Israel as they didn't do that. They were sent into exile, where God dealt with them again and brought them back to himself later. But what happened to the American Evangelical Church? Well, Fickert and other uh, church historians have looked at what happened to the church in terms of mercy ministry and, and ministering to the poor. And before 1900, before the 20th century, really the only way that there was help for poor in our country was through churches. And then the whole controversy over what was the fund, what are the fundamental teachings of the scriptures got underway. And there was a big thing of what's what's true and what's not true. And those who who uh, were more of the evangelical, the fundamental side, began to see those who were more liberal theologically moving over to what they called social gospel, social justice issues. And they thought this, that's what takes them away. And so we want to stay pure and true to the word of God. And so we began to back out of those kinds of engagements. What uh, church historians call is the great reversal. You see, before then, our government was very little involved in helping out the poor. In fact, it really didn't start until Lyndon Johnson's administration when they started the war on poverty in 1960. And that began to change the way we have, we have related to that. So, um, can we deduct from that that our lack of influence in our culture and our static and declining growth as evangelical and biblical churches, is that, part of, is that a result of this kind of lack of engagement? Well, I don't know. But we all have watched churches who have pulled out of more difficult and dangerous neighborhoods into more affluent and safe neighborhoods over the years, leaving the blighted areas of our city and the broken areas of our city basically untouched and we have become marginalized well so how do, what do we do with this well let's go back to the text let's go back to our text <clears throat> god began by becoming vulnerable to us he set his heart on love and then he asked us to circumcise our hearts and to not be stubborn any longer. The Israelites couldn't do that. He knew that. In fact, this is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He said, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, then the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Did you hear that? He said in Deuteronomy 10, he said, circumcise your heart. And he says, you've now failed that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to do this surgery for you. 
The Israelites couldn't do that for themselves. We can't do that for ourselves. But God, in fact, has done that. As Paul describes in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he says this. In him, that is in Jesus, you were also circumcised, there's that word again, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, God himself has performed this dangerous and difficult surgery on our hearts to cut away those things which keep us separated from him. And what is that? It's our own brokenness. It's our own inadequacy. It's our own really tendency towards self-destruction. He, because all of the weight of the things we have done wrong had been put upon Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took the cut for us. My God, my God, why have you why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God for a time and the weight of all of our darkness, all of our sin was put upon him. And then when Jesus took that into the grave, three days later was raised again from the dead. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new lives. He has given us at circumcision that of the heart so that we can truly hear what he is saying to us. And we can truly follow him. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the good news. I've been putting pretty heavy uh, emphasis on the bad news. But here is the good news. You see, God says, I've set my heart in love on you. And he says, then don't be stubborn. Circumcise your hearts. And then he takes the next step. Since he, for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, he has cut away the things that separate us from him, even in our own inner beings. Then he says, now I want you to hear what's really important to me. And look what he says in verses 17 and 18. He speaks of what his delight is. Listen to this. In verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, The great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Do you hear this? Don't you love this guy? I mean, here's the the ultimate insider. And what does he focus his attention on? The outsiders. (laughs) Those who are disadvantaged, those who are broken, just like us, because we're part of that group. And he he says, I will set my love. What does he do? He has all power. I'm God of gods, Lord of lords, the mighty, the awesome. I don't take bribes. I have unimpeachable integrity. And what do I do with all that power, with all that rightness? I come alongside and I stand up for those who are fatherless and the widows. I feed the sojourners, what we would call the homeless. That's what he does. That's what's important to him. And when I read this about four and a half years ago, five years ago, my heart melted. 
this is an incredible being here who with all power could smash everything and anything in his way. But what does he do? He comes along and he scoops up those who are most weak, those who are unable to do anything for themselves as we are. (laughs) And then what does he do more than that? Look at verse 19. He says this. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, for the people of Israel, they were under an impossibly oppressive regime of the Egyptian pharaohs. They were made to be slaves, and their slavery was made harder and harder and harder as the days went on. And here they were. They could not get themselves out of that. God came and intervened and broke them out of that. And he says, since God has done that for you, since he has given you that grace, since he has rescued you from your hopeless estate and brought you into the land (laughs) of promise, join with me, he says. Join with me to love those I love, to get involved with those who are broken, just like you were broken. And grant them an opportunity to hear of and experience the same grace that you have received through Jesus Christ. That is the promise and the hope and the calling. You see, how do you get to know somebody really well? You find out what's important to them. You get involved with it. You walk alongside of them. And what called me out of the ministries that I was involved in before into this focus is because it was clear that this is where God is. He's several other places, but this is what's important to him. And as we go and join him as his people ministering to the fatherless and the widows and the, and the homeless, all of that, we get to be where he is. We get to experience his love for others and we get to participate in breaking down the barriers and breaking down the brokenness and bringing hope to those who have no hope of their own, just like we. And that is the calling. That is the hope. That is the promise. That is the joy. Love the sojourners therefore. And so, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I talked to the leaders of our church, and they said, well, you've got experience in church planning, but you've never done any of this. And, you know, and I said, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> and why are you going here? I said, this is my heart. And we prayed together as a church, and about two years later, the session opened the door for me to shift from church planting over to full-time at Altadena. I was part-time there before, and to focus on the ministry to the sojourners in our city. Before that, though, I had I heard this, love the sojourners. So I went down to Brother Brian and said, what's going on? I had some friends there who were interacting there. And I got assigned a man by the name of Michael Brown, who was a resident there, still is actually. And um, I cannot tell you the joy I've had in getting to know that man. He is one of my very best friends. We spend a lot of time together. He comes and, and spends time in our house. He, he celebrates Thanksgiving and holidays with us. 
He is a great friend. And I have learned so much from him and grown so much. And we have been able to encourage each other in ministry as he ministers there and as I minister in the other places that God has called me to. But let me tell you, I got a taste of who God is by the fellowship of that man, my brother in Christ. So let me encourage you to hear God's call and to pray, will you open a door for me? Will you show me the way? He will, I promise you, because this is important to him. He uses all of his power. And what does he do? He says, here's a homeless person. Let's lift him. Let's lift her up. And see them find love and grace and stability. So um, I've been asked also to talk a little bit about what kind of things we're involved in. I was really thrilled to see you're involved in several different ministries. And and uh, that's awesome. I mean, Foundry and Love Lady and Grace House and the other, and Save a Life. We're involved in Grace House and Save a Life. Um, some in, in with Love Lady. But what we have decided to do is make a focus focus of our energies because there's so many things out there and we're finding our congregation going in a hundred different directions actually they still are but we're trying to sort of draw it in and focus and so we have focused on east lake we spent about nine months praying about where god would have us go and um <clears throat> after about nine months we looked at all different areas of, the, of town and we thought well wait a minute you know we have a sister church right there in east lake household of faith let's join with them and be partners with them. And so that's what started it. We've made a 25-year commitment to Eastlake. And then we have to look at who we are ourselves. Um, we are not real strong in the area of construction, i got to tell you. I mean, really. And we'll, say, well, what can we offer? Well, I remember uh, in one of his books, Keller talked about the wealth of education. And we are wealthy as a congregation in that area. We are well-educated. And so we started out joining with another sister church, Christ Church Methodist, which is just down uh, Caldwell Mill from us. They made a 25-year commitment also to Eastlake. That is a beautiful, God-loving, gospel-centered church. And we have been partners with them at Barrett Elementary, right there a block away from Household of Faith. And we've been teaching these kids math and reading. And God has opened up opportunities. Oh, man, I wish I had time to tell you more about them. But um, then we also decided that when we were involved in the, the tutoring, we could sometimes have gospel opportunities. And there was in my first year gospel opportunity where I saw five of the kids that I was working with come to faith. I mean, it was like the heavens opened up. It was amazing what God did. But that was rare. So we heard about a group called Discovery Clubs. And we asked if we could work with them and start a club at Barrett Elementary. So they worked with that. The, the um, administration there, Ms. Birchfield, who's the principal, was excited to have us. Last year we had about 20 or so kids involved in second grade. This year we expanded from second grade to third grade. We have 60-plus kids now. And this is a great gospel ministry. You, it's not, you know, be, be like Daniel. He was a good guy, you know. But it is the whole story of the gospel that we start from fall through spring, creation, corruption, rescue, restoration, the whole thing. And it's told through the stories of the Old Testament, then the birth of Jesus. And, you know, I had five, I had six or seven boys in, in second grade. Five of them came to know Christ through that time. I mean, it's just great. 
Well, we have, then one of the other things we did is we looked at who is our congregation. We had a lot of teachers. We had some retired people who could do, you know, midday, because uh, this is like three in the afternoon that we do discovery clubs, and tutoring is in mornings or afternoons whenever you can work it out. But there's a whole group of people that wanted to get involved and couldn't do daytime stuff because oh, they work for a living, you know, hey. Uh, and they had a lot to give. So we started this last year, um, Jobs for Life in concert with Shepherd's Fold, which is a reentry program that our congregation has been involved with for a number of years. And um, it was a beautiful and terrifying experience all at the same time. Um, we got involved in the lives of people, and that's one of the focuses we do. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Hands-on ministry. Don't just give checks out. Get involved. Get down there. Get, get in place. And um, it, it takes somebody in your congregation to help you open doors and build relationships with leaders, but that will make a big difference, and that's been my role. And I'm glad to talk to anybody here about how we can do that. We have about 80 or so adults uh, from our congregation. Average uh, attendance in, on Sunday morning of adults is 250. So it's a pretty significant uh, number of our folks involved, and it's been exciting to see. Well, with Jobs for Life... We have one couple, one guy actually, who's just come out of prison, um, and he has been living with a woman. They have kids together, and he wanted to say, I want to make things right. So we're working with him to find a job with felonies and so on. It's a tough thing, but we're still working at it. But they're getting married March 8th. I'm going to be part of that service. And working with uh, our sister church, Oak Mountain, their house has been rehabbed, and they're going to move into that house with their kids. They've been living in projects. And so all of a sudden, God has opened doors for a new life. That has been beautiful and exciting. The terrifying part was, and it's always hard for me to talk about this, a young man by the name of Nick started into our, our, our teaching time there. It's an eight-week program. Sixteen times you meet together, and when he first started, he was just barely, could barely lift his head and almost never look anybody in the eyes, and could barely speak. But as time went on, what we, one of the things we have him do is give a self-commercial, like, what are you good at? And he could stand up, shoulders back, speak clearly, but he died of an overdose of heroin. About five weeks in, he wrote a poem called Here I Am, Down on My Knees, pleading to God to have mercy on him. And um, found out after all this happened that his mother died of an overdose. All of his siblings have died of overdoses. His father was murdered in prison. And he was raised in a snake-handling church. But you know what? I believe he trusted God through all of that. But the privilege for us is to be in the middle of that brokenness. Another one of our students has gotten back into jail and we're working with him up in Morgan County. We're going to hopefully get him out this week and continue to love on him. You see, God says, love the sojourners because I love them. Therefore, you love them. Give them the grace that God has poured out into your hearts and into your lives 
so that they can experience the same thing, the same grace, the same renewal, the same restoration, the same hope that you have. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are here and powerfully present. We ask, O Lord, that you would work in each of us, that we might hear your voice and respond as you have called us to. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.